I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. Uh, if you've been joining us, thank you for coming back. Please uh, like, share, and subscribe. If this is your first time, the purpose here is to ignite courageous conversations between the concerns of culture, our social problems that we face on a regular basis, and the message of hope and love and peace found in the gospel. So we're hoping that this conversation today will spur conversations in the future. When we think about what's happening in our world right now, it is impossible for our minds to stray very far from the impact of the coronavirus and COVID-19. And what highlights that perhaps more than anything is that this is Holy Week. We're coming up on Easter. And most of the time, even if people are not particularly religious, there are celebrations around this time of year and there's uh, little dresses for little girls being bought and there's flowers and Easter eggs and all kinds of festivities planned. And now we're locked down. People are figuring out how to have an Easter egg hunt on Zoom. I mean, all right, let's get creative, but let's face it, coronavirus and COVID-19 are just all over us. But they should be, because that's the seriousness of this. Because you see, in reality, part of the reason that it's all over us is because of our God-given ability to empathize and to sympathize to feel with others, to recognize the seriousness of the situation. We think about the rising death toll. We dread the spread, and we look for glimmers of hope, of containment and cure. We pray for medical personnel who are carrying the weight of the front line of this fight. We're concerned for our loved ones and our neighbors and how they'll be impacted. We fear economic ruin not only as families, but as a, as a nation, as a world. And we grieve the loss of those we know and do not know. And I just felt like we had to start the podcast today with a moment of silence to observe the loss to humanity and the very personal and private loss of those who have lost loved ones. So would you observe with me a moment of silence? You see, we're looking for ways to show solidarity. We're not just looking for ways to show that we care. We're looking for ways to demonstrate that all of humanity is woven into one sacred garment. Today, we want to focus our thoughts on the passion of Christ because I think we should ask the question, does Holy Week say anything to COVID-19? I mean, are these two separate conversations or do they go together? I hear people, uh, some people on the one side kind of flouting science as if it doesn't mean anything and we just pray the germs away, right? And then we've got people on the other side who are like scoffing at religion, mocking those who pray as if the only thing humanity needs is some biological therapeutic cure. 
that a vaccine would fix everything. Well, if a vaccine would fix everything, then for people in my generation, the polio vaccine should have fixed the world. Or smallpox. You see, the world is made up of something more than biology. The whole world is a sacred creation of God. It's all meant to go together. The church and religion are not some uh, out of this world experience where everything else is kind of material and dark and, and uh, somehow some story of, a, of a, something that's broken that can't be fixed. No, it's all together. And it is God's will that the world be completely restored, that all diseases be not only eradicated, but the world would be healed in every single way. So I do believe that the gospel has a conversation, a meaningful conversation can be had between the gospel and this disease and how we experience them. So maybe we should ask this question. What is Holy Week? When I was growing up, I didn't know what Holy Week was. No one in my family talked about Holy Week. We never had that conversation. In fact, I had probably been a follower of Christ for a long time before I even asked myself, what in the world does Good Friday mean? And then I heard of Monday Thursday. What in the world is Monday Thursday? Does someone not know how to pronounce Monday, right? So since this is Wednesday and tomorrow is Monday Thursday, what is that fifth day of Holy Week about? Well, actually, it is a day that commemorates the foot washing of Jesus, him washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and Monday, the Latinized term meaning command, it's the command of Jesus that we would love each other like he loves us. This is followed on the sixth day of Holy Week, Good Friday. And once again, I can remember myself asking, well, why would anybody call it good? What was good about that Friday? Oh, we say it now, thank God it's Friday. But they're talking about one specific Friday about 2,000 years ago when in a complete mistrial, when a complete injustice occurred and an innocent person was slaughtered, what in the world could be good about that Friday? It doesn't have anything to do with Friday being good. And it actually has nothing to do with the events of that day being good. Here is, I think, is helpful to us. In the Baltimore Catechism, it describes it this way. It is referred to as Good Friday because Christ showed his great love for humanity and purchased for us every blessing. It's not good because of what happened it's good because of what was accomplished in Christ. Then comes Holy Saturday, the seventh day of the week. This commemorates the day that Jesus' body was in the tomb, but it also commemorates Jesus' spirit preaching to the spirits in prison. It communicates across all Christian faiths and traditions that God was at work even in the tomb. Then comes Easter, and if you've been counting with me, you're like, well, wait a second, we're, we're out of days. Unless we're the Beatles, eight days a week, we're out of days, aren't we? Well, that's because Easter comes on the first day of the new week, the new day, 
the new creation, the new start for humanity. And since we're going to talk about that on Sunday, we're going to walk away from Easter for today, and we're going to focus on this titanic battle in the final days of Holy Week, this war that raged and was that raged and was waged between two houses, the house of the world and the house of heaven, that which could be seen and that which was unseen, that which is tangible and that which is intangible, that which was representative of the ways of the world that literally took the life of Christ and the ways of heaven that gave the life of Christ for the world. I want to step into this story first today in John chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 28, John 18, 28 through 40. And I want you to pick up with me on a couple of characters. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace, the house of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the house of the Roman governor because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them. What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have not have handed him over to you. Now I want you to, f- to focus on verse 30. If he wasn't a criminal. They've already decided that Jesus is guilty and deserves death. They've just got to twist the governor's arm to get it done. He said, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. They tipped their hand again, but we have no right to execute him. They've already determined that he will get the death sentence. So verse 33, Pilate goes back inside his house and he summons Jesus into his house. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked. Well, Jesus said, let me ask you something. Is that your own idea? Or has someone else told you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and your chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. And then Pilate says, well, then you're a king then? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews who had gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had been involved in an uprising. Now, you notice in verse 36, Jesus clarifies that we've actually got two approaches going on. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying something like, hey, man, I ain't from around here. He's not saying that. What he is saying to Pilate is, don't imagine I'm a mirror image of you. Don't think we're just alike. That we're two different guys trying to occupy the house of power. 
You see, this is more than a theological statement about who Jesus is or a salvation statement, what Jesus came to do. This is actually a cosmic battle about two visions for the world, two different ways that the house of humanity would be built. So what is the frame of this narrative? Well, what I'd like for us to do is maybe look through those that were building on the house of humanity, two characters in the story, and the first one is Pilate. When we explore the characters in the story, I want you to think about these people not as a Sunday school story, but real people in real time. Because you see, Luke tells us in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 23, that in between, as Jesus is being tried, he goes back and forth between these different houses, including the house of Herod. So you've got Herod, a king of the Jews, a king among the Jews, and then you've got Pilate. And these are these, are these two different houses of government. One of them is the Roman governor. The other one is the appointed king in that area, north of Jerusalem, north of Judea, where Herod Antipas was. But these two characters from these two houses of government are both propped up by Rome, both of them. And they are both fulfilling the vision of humanity through their own lens. So let's talk about Pilate first. We know very little about Pilate's life before he became the fifth governor of Judea around 26 AD. Here's what we do know. We do know that he was eventually, about 10 years in, he was removed from being governor because of his excessive use of force and his violence when he suppressed an uprising of the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. In fact, he was so violent in that act, we have a reference in Luke chapter 13 and verse 1 to how Pilate was more than willing to mix people's blood in his violence. That's Pilate. But the other character in the story that we discover is Herod. In Luke chapter 23, it says that in this back and forth movement, there's a very telling verse Look with me, if you would, at verse 8, Luke 23 and verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see some kind of miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there and vehemently accusing him. Well, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. Ready? That day, Herod and Pilate became friends, because before that, they had been enemies. Now, why was that? Well, we actually do know a little bit more about Herod. You see, Herod's father is the character in Scripture we know of as Herod the Great. He's the Herod of the birth story of Jesus. Now, this Herod has a unique experience coming up. He's politically nimble. Every single decision Herod makes is a decision for Herod. If it's a decision by Herod, it's a decision for Herod. 
An example of this is when there was civil war in the Roman Empire. Now, you might remember these stories from your Western Civ classes, right? You've got Mark Antony and Cleopatra VII of Egypt, and they are allies. They are going to be in a civil war and take on Octavian, who we know later as Julius or as uh, Caesar Augustus. So in this civil war, initially, Herod backs Mark Antony and Cleopatra. But we know the story. They lose. In the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, we know the story, Octavian wins that battle. He chases them to Egypt. He wins the Battle of Alexandria. Mark Antony commits suicide, dies in Cleopatra's arms. She too either is poisoned or is bitten by a snake. She dies. It's all over. And Herod backed the wrong horse. But very quickly, Herod realizing that his future in power means he's got to switch political parties. So he quickly switches his allegiance to Octavian. And by switching to Octavian, he convinces Octavian that he's been backing him all along. He's really been an Octavian man the whole time, which is what keeps him in power. Now, another thing about Herod that you have to know, Herod kind of wanted people to believe that he was a self-made man, that he kind of did it all himself. But that's not actually the truth. Herod's dad was really the guy. He was a friend of Julius Caesar. Now, you remember that famous Caesar, and it's that Julius Caesar who was an uncle to Octavian. When that Julius Caesar died, in his will, he made Octavian the heir to the throne. And so because Herod's dad was the one who actually got the empire up and rolling, he was just benefiting from the work that his dad had done. But he then decided that he wanted to come to power. His whole rise to power was built off of, of his dad's alliance with Julius Caesar and then him switching his alliance and his allegiance to Octavian. Now, the reason I give you this history is we have to understand how Herod's house is being built from Herod's father on down. Now, Herod Antipas had a brother, Herod Archelaus. And Herod Archelaus was put in charge of the Judean region after the death of his father, Herod the Great. But right out of the chute, he faced a problem and he blew it. The problem was his dad had murdered some people brutally in an uprising and then suddenly died. The people were still furious about it. So Archelaus takes over and he's trying to navigate all this, but the people aren't having it. They come into the temple, they're mourning, the crowds are gathering, gathering. He tries to disperse the crowds. They won't leave. So he sends in his soldiers and murders 3,000 people. His reign was doomed from the start. Not many years after that, just a few years later, that kingship was actually done away with and replaced with a Roman governor who eventually, that position is filled by Pilate himself. Now, Archelaus's brother, Herod Antipas is ruling to the north in the region of Galilee. And it's that Herod that's in the story in Luke chapter 23. It's that Herod who's never got along with Pilate. So bear in mind, Herod's brother Archelaus is out. 
Who sits in his seat? Pilate the governor. Herod Antipas in the north and Pilate the governor in the south have never got along. They've never found a reason to get along. But suddenly, when they realize that through perhaps their own mutual self-interest, they could gain something through the death of Jesus, they find a way to become friends, political allies. You see, every decision by them was for them. Herod created a culture where serving self became normalized and defendable. As a result, when his misdeeds were flaunted before the public, he was always able to ride out the storm because of his building projects, his ties to Roman power, his political intrigue, the economy, and his ability to distance himself from the consequences of his own actions. It was around 40 B.C., that the Romans had appointed Herod the Great to become king. This started what we know of as the Herodian dynasty or the house of Herod. Say that with me, the house of Herod. But you see, the house that Herod built was the house that was present when Jesus was on trial. How did Herod even get into this mix in the first place? If you look back at his genealogy, he's actually an Edomian, the biblical Edom. He's, he's not even a full Jew. How does this happen? Well, the famed revolutionary, John Hyrcanus, leader of the Jews from 134 to 104 BC, when he conquered Edomia, Edom of the Bible, he required that all the residents obey Jewish law or get out. So most of them converted. Uh, they were circumcised. They intermarried. They followed Jewish customs. Well, that was Herod's homeland, and that's how his family came into Judaism, which he publicly claimed to be a Jew. But his decadent lifestyle made that claim, was always undermining that claim. He claimed publicly, no, I'm a Jew, man, that's who I am. But his lifestyle was so decadent that people were like, that's, you're not a real Jew. So there was always that tension that surrounded Herod. And that tension continued in future generations. When writers summarized Herod's reign, they said that these vast projects were always intended to gain the support of the Jews and to improve his reputation as, as, as their leader. His constant concern for his own reputation eventually emptied the kingdom coffers and upset his Jewish subjects. That was the house of Herod. So Herod Antipas, he is the one who ordered the death of John the Baptist. And now he colludes with Pilate in the death of Jesus. His own life was a salacious story of violence and disregard for God and others. This was the hallmark of his life, so it should not surprise us that in the trial of Jesus, both he and Pilate tested the political winds to see if they were blowing in their favor. You see, saving Jesus' life or killing him was really of no consequence to either one. It only mattered how it turned out for them politically. They were politicizing the life 
and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in Herod and Pilate, we see the house built by hate. The house that hate built was just the culmination of a lifestyle where they continually put themselves first. Surely they could have chosen better friends. The house that hate built stood there on the hill in Jerusalem that day, staring down another house, a house from another world, a house not of this world, a house not built by hate, but a house built by the timbers and the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. The house that hate built is still trying to expand, isn't it? You know, that's not actually an original title with me. Sarah Elizabeth Mason, who was an author born in 1911 in Demopolis, Alabama, hit her stride as an author in the 1940s, and she wrote murder mysteries and detective fiction. One of her stories was called The House That Hate Built. Now, it's fascinating because the fictional story in the book is loosely based on a terrible murder-suicide that took place in her hometown 10 years earlier in Demopolis, Alabama in 1934. More on that in a moment. But in the story of the house that hate built, it's a fictional story about a bank president, James Clark, who marries M Margaret Branch, the mother of the glamorous divorcee, Margot Branch. Well, in the story, this is a terrible turn for James's spinster blue-blooded sisters who are part of the social elite. And they make it clear that Margot is beneath them socially and they're putting her down everywhere. And so she decides to get revenge. So she builds a house right next door to theirs so that every day for the rest of their life, they will have to get up and stare at her and the house that hate built. Well, as the fictional story continues, the intrigue builds as Margot is brutally murdered, stabbed to death in the house that hate built. But this was loosely based on a real story. Yes. You see, in the real story, Frank Clements Smith, a 36-year-old cashier of Commercial National Bank, Demopolis, and his 22-year-old wife, Elsie Smith, and their two young children, a part of the socialite elite of Demopolis, brutally killed in their own home, supposed to be a brutal murder-suicide, or perhaps just a murder. It plagued the town as the murder went on, unsolved, the grit, the grime, the grist in the gossip mill of what happened to this family 
in a house where apparently hate had been brewing under a guise of the perfect home. It's supposed that out of that true story, Mason wrote her novel. But you see, that's not the only house that gets built. Because what Jesus demonstrated there even at the cross was the very timbers on which you will crucify me will be in the foundation of a new house. In fact, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus himself is the cornerstone of a new house of humanity, a house not built by hate, but built on love. You see, we all are too familiar with these houses of hate, aren't we? Whether they're fictional or true, we see them. And sometimes they're right in our own homes. Back in 2017, the Gottman Institute, led by Dr. John Gottman, released some research where the question was asked, what is the number one indicator that a marriage will end in divorce? And of course, there were many suggestions, but research demonstrated that the number one indicator was contempt. The people no longer saw the good, the value, the potential or possibility in another human being. In essence, I don't care if you live or die. We're too familiar with this house of hate. So how do we join in the building of the house of love? Well, St. Augustine said that all of our sin is disordered love. And so the disordered love in humanity that does the most damage is the perceiving of self as more important than others and the deceiving of self that such a posture does no real harm. Let me say that again. It is the perceiving, the perception of myself that I'm more important, that my survival matters more than others, that my nation matters more than others, that my profession matters more than others, that my church matters more than others, my home, my reputation, my family, that I perceive that I matter more than others, and then I deceive myself into believing that that posture does no tangible harm. It is the self-perception that I'm more important and the self-deception that it doesn't do any harm. The first step in building the house of love. The apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But this is in the context of Romans chapter 12, where Paul talks about authentic love, the renewal of life in the world, where rather than perceiving myself as more important, deceiving myself that it doesn't matter, I say, oh, no, 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 I matter. And so does everyone else. I am a creation of God, but so is everyone else. It is important that my nation do well and every other nation do well. It is important that I think rightly about the people group with which I identify and every other people group. This is the house Jesus came to build. Hmm. That house is important. We have examples of how that house is built. 
So I want us to take a moment and look at an awesome example. So during this experience with the pandemic of the coronavirus and COVID-19, our history has been awakened to 1918, 1919, and the great influenza that took over 50 million lives worldwide and changed the course of history. But you do realize that that pandemic had to be arrested as well. It had to uh, be addressed. Researchers and doctors and physicians and epidemiologists had to go to work on figuring out how this was being transmitted. Why are people getting sick? Why are people dying? And how do we stop it? And I want to tell you about a house of medicine. Not a house of Herod built on hate, but a house of medicine built on love that generationally came to solve the greatest pandemic that had happened worldwide in nearly 550 years. How did they do it? Well, there's a lot of characters in the story. So today, I've just got to kind of uh, connect you with just a few. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I don't go crazy here. I'm going to tell you first about William Henry Welch. Do you know about this guy? Well, depending on how you're listening to this podcast, why don't you go look him up right now? Henry or William Henry Welch, born in 1850, lived till 1934. He was born and raised in a family of doctors, generational family of physicians. But at the age of 15, he gave his life to God and he saw no conflict between science and his faith. He saw the two working together. He was raised in a family of science and faith, a family of medicine, and a family that understood the good physician is God. So he himself stated he saw no tension between science and faith, and he intended to practice both. Now, he ended up being one of the big four founding professors of Johns Hopkins Hospital and University. He was called, and to this day is called, the Dean of American Medicine. He joined the John Hopkins team in 1884. Listen to this. He developed the first, the first, the first postgraduate training program for physicians in the United States. The first postgraduate training program for physicians in the country. He was the founding editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Epidemiology. I bet you some of you never heard the word epidemiology until a few weeks ago when coronavirus crept across our shores. But he was the founding editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Epidemiology. In 1929, he founded the Institute of the History of medicine, thankfully, because we are now the beneficiaries of these decisions. But hospitals and cities coveted doctors that were trained by Welch. Cities got in a waiting line. Different hospitals would do everything they could to latch on to one of the people he trained. Many of them went on to become prominent physicians, such as Walter Reed, the co-discoverer of the cause of yellow fever. 
and Simon Flexner, the founding director of the Rockefeller Institute of Med Medical Research, and Francis Peyton Rouse, who was a Nobel Prize winner and virologist. All of these were trained by Welch. Welch served in the U.S. Army Medical Corps during World War I, and he played a major role in the response to the 1918 influenza epidemic. But what about Walter Reed? Now you're thinking, where do I know that name? You know of the hospital named after him, Walter Reed Hospital in the Washington, D.C. area. It's named after this son of a minister who was born in 1851. He went to medical school at the University of Virginia. He completed another medical degree, but then he jumped at the opportunity to go to Johns Hopkins and do advanced training under Dr. Welch. It was, it was Walter Reed who then traveled to Cuba during the Spanish-American War to go among the U.S. Army encampment to try to understand how yellow fever and malaria were being transmitted. He also studied typhoid fever. He was one of the first early adopters of Louis Pasteur's germ theory of disease, and it was he who confirmed that yellow fever was transmitted not by bodily contact, but by mosquitoes. Now, he himself, however, a humble man of faith, credited Cuban epidemiologist Carlos Finlay for his research because Reed was building on his research. Another key ally in this fight against these kinds of diseases was William Crawford Gorgas. He was born in 1854. He was the 22nd Surgeon General of the U.S. Army from 1914 to 1918. Listen to those dates. He was best known for his work in Florida, Havana, and the Panama, Panama Canal Zone and his work with yellow fever and malaria. He was from Tolmanville, Alabama. He built his work on the work of Carlos Finlay and Walter Reed, who built their work on Dr. Welch, who built his work out of his faith and his family and science. Now, what do you hear in this story? You hear people who because of their faith were willing to courageously step into difficult circumstances and apply the gifts they had been given for the benefit of others, no matter how it turned out for them. You see, the whole world was ready to credit Walter Reed with, with figuring out yellow fever. But it was Walter Reed who said, no, 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 no. Don't leave out Cuban epidemiologist who had just as much impact as me, Dr. Carlos Finley. It was Gorgas who was willing to go into all these areas, to Cuba, to the war zone, to the Panama Canal zone, in the midst of these disease-ridden areas in order to cure the disease. You see, one approach is um, let me see how this disease is going to affect my political career, and then we'll figure it out. That's how Pilate and Herod were approaching Jesus. But these doctors were saying, let's figure out how to save humanity 
and show our love through our work. It's fascinating because the house that hate built, the original story from Demopolis, Alabama, with Frank Clement Smith and his wife's brutal murder, it didn't end there. Because you see Frank's surviving brother, Fenton Reed Smith, and his wife moved to Panama Canal. And it was there that she actually died of the Spanish influenza in a hospital named after William Crawford Gorgas. The coming together of these stories, because you see, the house of hate isn't going away. It's not going to disassemble itself. So the house of love must be constantly built. Are we willing to build that house? I want you to think about this with me for a few moments. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying my kingdom doesn't belong on this earth. He's just saying, when I think about the earth, I don't think about it like you think about it. My vision is not the same as yours. I'm not trying to figure out a way to keep myself in power, Pilate. I'm not trying to figure out a way to keep myself in power, Herod. I'm trying to figure out a way to heal the world. And I'm going to give my life for it. You, you are willing to give my life for it. But for yourself, I'm willing to give my life for the world, says Jesus. He said, the world is not what it was meant to be yet. Do you remember when Jesus cleared the temple? Do you remember what he said about his father's house? He said, my father's house has been turned into a den of robbers. You see, that's what the Herods and the Pilots of the world do. They turn the house of God into a den of robbers. Jesus cleared it all out. And you remember what he said? My house is a house of prayer for the nations. That's the house that Jesus was building. Jesus says that this kingdom for which I am willing to die is a kingdom that invites the entire world into one new humanity that was birthed at the cross on Good Friday. This is why John the Apostle can come back and say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Christ. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. And he will reign forever and ever. And in Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 6, we join him as priests serving the world, giving our lives for the world. Oh, I'm not sure if anyone brings it together, be together better. Then the Apostle Paul, when he writes this to Titus, in chapter 3 of Titus, beginning in verse 1, remind the people to be subject to the rulers and the authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show you true humility to all men. Do you hear the house that love builds? The house that love builds slanders no one, always ready to do good, peaceable, considerate, shows true humility to every person. That's the house that love builds. Isn't that exciting? But then he says, remember, you weren't born in this house. Listen to this. At one time, you too were foolish and disobedient. 
deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's the house that hate built. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's what Good Friday is about. That the house that hate built doesn't win. And the house that love builds invites us out of the house of hate and into the house of love. But not just as people to kind of lounge around on our couches, but builders, woo, builders of the house of love. So here's my question for you. What kind of house are you building? Are you building the house of hate? I think maybe today's a day to put down your hammer, walk away from that building project, and come to Jesus at the cross and say, I want to become a builder in the house of love. If you want to become a builder in the house of love, we want to hear from you. We want you to go to our Facebook page or go to our website, lovefirst.org. And we want you to let us know that you want to be a builder in the house of love. If this means making a commitment to Jesus Christ for the first time, let us know because we want to walk with you into that commitment. If it means coming back to Jesus saying, man, I'm done building the house of hate. I want my life, my workplace, my home, my neighborhood. I want to be building the house of love. Let us know that. Would you please? Would you tell us about it? If you'll contact us and let us know about that, we've got some resources that can help you start building your house of love. So I want to say thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast today. Please like, subscribe, and share. And hopefully you'll join us this Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for Easter worship at lovefirst.org. We look to see you then. Love first, I know.